What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Zebo Gao at Intonation Ventures. Intonation is an early stage fund based in New York City and Beijing that invests in products that bring people joy. Zebo is the founding partner of the fund, and within his role, he focuses on companies within gaming, sports, and wellness. In this talk, we discuss challenges for junior VCs and emerging fund managers, investing in products that provide an emotion, some nuances of investing within China, and thoughts around hype building strategies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, it's a beautiful day. Courtney, y'all live from, from Mexico. And we have a really special guest that was actually uh, recommended to us by our good friends over at Cardo. We spoke very highly of them, along with some other folks in the Confluence Network. We have Zebo Gal of Intonation Ventures. Thank you for coming to kick it with us, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's an honor, man. How about uh, just to kick us off like usual, you hit us with a two-minute elevator story on what you got going on and how you got to where you are and then also i would love to understand the 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 naming behind intonation ventures for sure so my name is zebo i grew up in china i came to the states for high school when i was 15. i wanted to be a professional violinist but i couldn't get through the final round of julia went to columbia instead studied financial econ and psychology I had an alternative rock band when I was a freshman and really wanted to be, you know, a rock star, but we didn't go far with that plan, even though we wanted to be bigger than Metpar weekend, but, and we performed the same Columbia music festival. They went on to win a Grammy and we did not. Then I had a music startup in college, again, connecting musicians at venues to host gigs, running into some adoption issues, but learned a ton. Then I went on a more traditional path, investment banking at the Ring Group, and then consulting and strategy in, largely working with TMT clients again, such as Spotify, Tencent Music Group, SoundCloud, Cheddar, and a couple other media companies. The, the story of intonation, and especially the name, you probably already have an answer now, it's just, I'm a musician. That's what I've been doing for my entire life. And intonation is actually what I'm least good at. I'm okay with the rhythm. I'm okay with, you know, interpreting music. I'm okay with performing, but somehow I'm just really bad with intonation, but I really want to get better at it. Name the fun intonation. I have to be precise. I have to be just right on point to, to hit the perfect note. A bit more about the fund. We're focusing on pre-seed and seed consumer tech companies, mostly in the creator economy, gaming, and interactive media sectors. Our mission is to invest in products that bring people joy. And recently we also started the studio line of business ourselves. So we started building products ourselves. The goal is the same thing. We want to build products that bring people joy. We're, we're actively investing and building and having a lot of fun. 
Dude, that is pretty dope. That is dope. What a super dope story. Hats off to you for being elite on the musical side, then pivoting to, to another super elite school. One, also hats off for, to you for exploring a passion area at that level. You don't meet many people in our space who've done that or just in life who've done that, so that's phenomenal. Two, love your story to getting here. And then three, your fun is really cool. We've met, we had last week on the fund, or not on the fund, on the podcast, K50 Ventures with Ryan and those folks over there. And they have a thesis of like companies that improve the lives of the 99%. And like we were, me and Clay were like, yo, that's so dope, that's so dope. You're the second person who come on where I like get butterflies in my stomach. Where I'm like, wow, that's what you spend your day doing? <laughs> Yeah. Like finding companies that bring people joy. How awesome is that, bro? Well, that's, I, th I think there's more elevated way of framing it. A more on the street way of saying it is I really want to invest in cool shit. That when you try the product, when the new users get on, go through the onboarding, use it, and invite their first friend, they'd be like, wow. Like, I really want that factor. I want to see the smile on their face. I feel it, man. When you look at your website, like after hearing this thesis, I remember looking at your website, like this is really dope. Like companies like Harmontronics and even Astro, which is like effectively a FinTech company, which is like a little bit more of me and Clay's world. Like, I think they're just all dope. And I, I think that you're spot on with just like having that initial feeling tells you a lot. It kind of takes you back to when VCs, as part of their due diligence process, really dove into the product and then use it for a ton of time versus just looking at the metrics. I mean, with that, let me see. I would love to hear about what it was like for you starting this fund. And what was that process like? And especially like selling this thesis and like building up the, the portfolio ahead of time, or even if you didn't, like, what was that like for you? Yeah, I, I have to say I'm extremely lucky within the, uh, this part of the business. Um, so I started International because of COVID. Even before COVID, I've been pretty close with a few Asian family offices uh, just because my upbringing and, and who I grew up with. I know they've been investing in the U.S. into later stage deals, but I also know they want to get into U.S. early stage deals because they've seen how hard the market is and how tough it is to get into later stage stuff. So I thought I would be a pretty good candidate for it because I've done M&A, private placement, in banking, I've done diligence and consulting, I've lived a greater life, I've done startup, I've done a bit of everything. And most importantly, I truly want to build that bridge between Asia and the US. I think I'm more American than 99.9% .9 of the Chinese people here, like Chinese international people here, but obviously more Chinese than 99% of the Americans. So I think if this thesis can really play out, I'm the one to go out there and build this bridge. So when COVID hit, I immediately just called them up and be like, hey, this is a tremendous opportunity. We're never gonna see it again. A lot of funds are moving super slow. The founders don't know what to do. The market don't know what to do. We got to move fast. We got to get into it right now. The market's going to change forever. And I was just super lucky that, that they got on board with it. And then I, I collected the tracks and, and just got right into work. Got you. We, we had to do a little bit of fundraising on the Confluence side as well. And there's been like, there's been a community of us. We all talk about like, what kind of LPs are you targeting? For you, I think you clarified on that, but I'm curious as to like when you were targeting these LPs and selling them on the pitch, what were some of the questions they may have had? I know for me and Clay, we were thinking like joy is subjective 
And have you come up with a formula to like determine like what that feeling is that you spoke on earlier? What boxes it checks or do you just have an intuitive feeling or like some type of feeling or visceral reaction? So there is a combination of all of them, I would say. So there are a couple categories that we know will make people's life better and, and make them happier. First category is convenience. If you used to do certain things in an hour and now you can do it in 10 minutes, you're happier because you save your time and people are inherently lazy and you're getting done faster, so you're happier. Second category is making money. Before you're spending 10 hours making X amount of money. If right now you can make X amount of money in a shorter amount, or spend like finding spending the same amount of hours and making more money, you'll be happier. Another category, which is which I'm personally really excited and made a couple bets along this category is in enablement of new experiences and creations. Like we said earlier, like 99% of the people cannot do a lot of things. Before without local tools, 99% of people can't build any product. And because of technology, there are many things, the broader majority of people get to enjoy it. We invest in Boomi with the thesis that most people don't have musical knowledge to create any music. I can't even properly create a song myself now, even though I've had professional trainings my entire life. Wouldn't it be awesome to have an AI to help people create music and let more people to have that feeling that they're a musician? Similar stuff can be applied to writing, to art creation, video creation, photo, or even games. So we're super excited about that category. Another one is sort of cliche by now, but it's community. We believe in shared experiences, we believe in discovering and fostering friendship in a virtual setting or even hybrid setting. We think this thesis has been played out by Discord, but integrating a community feature into the product, community-led product is super, uh, is super precious. I've made a lot of internet friends during COVID and that type of warm feeling is what I'm looking for in the product and in the community that we're looking at. But at the same time, it, it also comes down to the number. It truly shows because nobody wants to use a boring or bad product more often than they already do. If it truly brings joy, they will use it more. And that shows in the number. It shows in the retention, shows in the session length, shows in engagement, virality, NPS, whatever you can think of. Like it, it does show. And then the last piece of the puzzle is certainly more art than science. You do get the, the butterfly feeling, you see it, you know, in the UGC content created on the platforms. You can hear it in the, in the customer's voice when you're doing customer interviews. You can see like the emojis, you can see users coming up with their own, own words within a Discord channel or a community forum. Those are really exciting. Those are like the mysterious corners of the internet that that are really awesome. But yeah, being a musician, I also study psychology. so. Those are what I uh, just like to work with and look into. But yeah, we definitely take customer reaction and feedback and their overall experience at the top, top priority in terms of discovering where this joy factor is. I feel it. And one, in terms of creating things and meeting people during COVID, Clay and I actually met during COVID over the internet. And then like, to your exact point, we were looking to build something and consumerized, or not even consumerized, just a product that made it incredibly easy to build websites and databases and integrate every software possible, like Notion, made it possible for us to build Confluence. Like, 
your thesis is 100% spot on because we would have never done this in the Microsoft Office suite. We would have probably never made our website without having some easy to use platform. We probably use one of the newer ones. And then same with podcasts, like Descript is a software that we shout out every time. It uses AI to just make it to where we can become audio editors in no time. I forget where it was. This is either one of the, like, the key readings that we put out or someone who's in a podcast like, like seven or eight episodes, but I can't remember. But we talked about or read about product-driven growth. And I think that like the thesis that you're pushing on is exactly that. Like a product that just because it exists makes it that much easier, that much more enjoyable. And it just makes you want to use it across other elements of your life or like it becomes the default. And you get a ton of organic growth and upsell through those types of platforms. So I love what you're doing. Let's see. You all focus on investing both in the U.S. and in China. Yes. You talk about the strategy. So like I personally, and I'm not, I know there's a lot of U.S. capital that goes into China, but usually what I've seen is a lot of my friends who have expertise in China or come from China investing here. That's typically the trend. Can you talk about like how you've laid out that strategy and what are some of the things that might shock the average U.S. investor about investing in China that we just have. Yeah, for sure. I get it. Yeah. Disclaimer, I mostly focus on the U.S. part. I know off the China strategy, but someone else is mostly focused on that because in China, we mostly do pre-IPO deals. I think we, our China team knows the Chinese IPO market the best. The early stage market is extremely tough. So this is one of the major differences. I've thought about going back to China and doing what I'm doing, doing pre-seed and seed. It's almost impossible. So in China, there's not a scene like emerging manager or crowdfunding syndicate or angel. It doesn't exist. Uh, bigger mega funds are getting bigger and they're going super. Normally, if you see Sequoia on the cap table or, or Hale House, which is the biggest B in China, um, which recently also set up a VC on. If you see them on the, on the cap table at a company C round, you already know who's going to come in this year, day and B and C. Um, you, you just know. And for any consumer company, when it gets to the later stage, you're going to see Alibaba or Tencent or Baidu or H1, DD on the cap table. Like it's just inevitable. Recently, China has been starting to crack down on antitrust. I, smaller early stage investor, I definitely think there's an issue with that. Sometimes I'm just wondering, hey, if I'm Sequoia China, if I'm seeing all the best deals, is it ever possible to not have a stellar return? I don't know the answer to the question, maybe it's possible, but another thing that some US investors, I guess, don't like to believe in or, or don't think is, is happening is just China in terms of consumer tech and behavior is really ahead of the US in terms of mobile adoption or, or in general technology adoption or willingness and willingness to learn the speed of learning is incredible. And we're seeing examples that U.S. companies are literally just taking, you know, what Chinese startups have tried a couple of years ago. It could be a feature, it could be a product, it could be a business model localized, localized in, in the U.S. And this is my conspiracy theory. I think this is what Clubhouse did. Or, or what ACCV did. I dig through a couple like older Chinese startups. They've all had this feature before, voice room, karaoke room, people sing a song, and then other people come on, another person come on, sing another song. It, it is very similar. I think similar to the long bag story, ACCV saw it and 
decided that let's give it a try in the U.S., but they've done a phenomenal job marketing and distributing initially. I think some U.S. investors don't like to believe that China is ahead in certain areas. I'm not talking about SpaceX or deep tech or self-driving cars. Those are China still behind, but in the consumer realm, I believe China is truly um, three or five years ahead. Um, so that creates an opportunity. In the 2000s, Masa, SoftBank uh, guy, and he was like, the time machine theory works, whatever is working in the US, we copy it to Asia, into like Japan, China first, and Southeast Asia, India. And I'm wondering maybe now is the reverse, is the anti-time machine theory. So yeah, that's, that, that's a thesis I'm constantly thinking about. I think you're spot on, dude. We did the exact same thing for Latin America, Southeast Asia, and now people are starting to move a little bit into uh, different countries within Africa. It's like whatever happened in London or whatever happened in the UK on the FinTech side of things, you can see it happen three to five years later in the US. Whatever happened in the US, you can see it happen three to five years later across Latin America, Southeast Asia, et cetera. And what you, with the, with the, the thing that you need to figure out is will they look more like China or they look more like Europe? So are they going to have a whole bunch of disparate solutions or are they going to all be chat-based? And then you can start to understand the infrastructure is what will inform that or like the cultural habits are what will inform that. Yeah, I think that the time machine theory is, is on point. Yeah, I think localization is super hard. Like you said, the cultural difference is significant. That's why I think Clubhouse did a great job. In China, it was entertainment based. And then Clubhouse went for the elite type circle. People who also like to talk a lot, just like the people <laughs> who enjoy singing and, and chatting about random stuff. Um, like that type of localization is extremely necessary. And not every single team will copy a certain model from a foreign country to get that right. Factual. Okay, you spend a ton of time thinking about investing in consumer products and services. One trend we've noticed over the past few years is this idea of engineering hype and FOMO around the products you have before they launch, like the wait list and all that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and just your thoughts on that generally and then maybe some strategies for hype building that you think actually work or that you like or maybe haven't been considered? Hey, that was a, a, a phenomenal question. We're going we to take a lot of valuable information from this guy on this one. I, I First of all, I got to say, I... I have a mixed feeling about hype. I really do. We, we went from the Clubhouse's ball on NFT and Dogecoin. Before that was uh, Wall Street bets. Uh, a lot of hype going around. So it makes definitely makes my job harder. And it makes the fellow entrepreneurs and investors who don't have the hype to feel like they're missing out. So that's one thing that I want to put it out there first. We all feel it. It's like, we feel the FOMO and it, and it can be very disruptive. But... It's totally fine. I've, 90% of the hypes are probably shortlisted, so uh, it's okay. But I think having hype is better than no hype because at least you're testing out a marketing thesis or a special distribution channel. You're testing out you know, the, the tagline or the core features or the way you're delivering it. And hype means you're getting something right. And that's better than no hype. But for me, I think waitlist is okay as long as you're doing a super fast iteration that you have something to put in front of a portion of that waitlist. Uh, I'm a firm believer of iterative design. 
And I don't like how companies will put you on waitlist and you would never hear from the company again for like six months. That I just don't like. I'd rather be on the waitlist, but having us an update, having a snippet of, here, of things here and there, or better yet, just have a Discord chat, Discord server, or whatever platform you decide to use, please just build with the people on the waitlist. I'm a firm believer of that way of building things because it's super rare for me to reply to a product update from a company that I'm on the waitlist of. But if I'm in the Discord chat, I know what you guys are doing. There's constant update. I see what like users who are using it are saying it. I will feel more formal. I will more inclined to say, hey, I want this feature. I want that feature. What can I do to get up the waitlist? So I think forming a community, moving it off from a lister is probably the best way uh, to go in my opinion. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Me and one of our LPs who I partner with on some other things, we looked at this company called August, which is focused on women's health at their month. And their entire business is building a community first. And the founder's brilliant. Like she's like her and her co-founding team, just like hustlers come from the nonprofit world and come from community building, which made the pivot just so natural. But they built out these Discord or whatever Discord competitor, I forget what platform they use. There's a million of these things now. They built out a community there, which is seeing tons and tons of messages with different women and specialists and product people talking about, this is what I'm experiencing. Here's the data behind this. This is how I feel. This is how I've solved every possible thing you can think about around the time of the month or their special time of the month. And... Then they have this Instagram that's like about women empowerment and education. It's like uh, the edutainment thesis plus community. And they built up like hundreds of thousands of users, a community that's sending tens of thousands of messages in their pre-product. So if you just think about it, they didn't spend any money building this stuff. So that itself, you just can get, and it's a subscription business that they'll launch. You can get a two to 5% conversion rate on like your community or maybe higher because of the affinity or the emotional tie-in uh, to a community, whether that be in this sector or any other sector, you're setting yourself up success. And it makes sense as an investor for you to pay up a little bit for the revenue that you can think of it like bookings or something. The revenue's there in, in, in some capacity versus us having to go pay a per per customer CAC over the next two years to get to the same size they can launch with. It's really impressive. And who else? This person we had on from BDMI was talking about companies that actually add value and actually understand their consumers and actually create that connectivity point or actually educate. And like how that's the new differentiator because you can't differentiate on product as much anymore nor business model as much anymore. It's becoming considerably more intimate. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think products, like you said, they're getting some more and more similar, like functionality-wise. Do I read it together? True. All right, so I know we're, 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 we're gaining a little bit of time, but that's because we're actually having a dope conversation. Let's switch gears a bit and then dive into some quick fire questions with Clay. That's cool? Yeah. Sure. All right, so last thing before we, we, we get to hear Clay's beautiful voice is uh, we think a ton about the challenges faced by junior VCs and emerging managers. 
And we love to hear what your thoughts are on some of those like major hurdles for both groups. We have tons of thoughts to share as well. So feel free to ask us questions or ask us anything in the world. And then we'll dive into the quick fire questions with Clay. And also Clay will jump in and answer any questions you have as well when we push this part. For sure. So challenges for junior BC ownership and upward mobility because we don't, for the junior BCs, they don't get to do all the deals they want to do. Uh, the partners need to approve. And then when the deal announcement go out, it's like the firm, the, the partner on the deal, you, the ownership, and you feel like you're not you know, being rewarded for the amount of work that you're doing or getting locked into a specific role. That could definitely be frustrating. Upper mobility is another one because I'm definitely seeing more funds, you know, not promoting internally. And just there's a GP spot open. Let's go find someone who's being a PM at three of the biggest companies in our industry, and we can just jump on and bring it an immediate enhancement to our network. And then for managing managers, I think some of it, or and also for junior VCs, the operator bug. You're dealing with entrepreneurs all day. You're doing this because you love early stage companies. I, I think most of us have thought about why not? Why can't we be on the driver's seat? Why not? I feel like that's a question I've been asking myself more and more. Just why not? Other people can do it. Why can't I do it? What am I afraid of? If I were to do it, can I do it better? Like you get into those train of thought. But I think it, it, it comes from a good place because you generally are interested and passionate about this early stage journey. But yeah, there's fun things to think about. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Like, you're literally writing the storyline for me and Clay's life over the last year or so. We both parted ways with our funds with the exact understanding of ownership, upper mobility, autonomy, belief in yourself and those kind of things, or just yearning to innovate or do things differently in an antiquated system, whether or not the systems work. A return's a return, but... Um, we both decided to go like lean into the operator side of, of things a little bit more. And then we quite literally built the Confluence Access Fund to give junior investors ownership. Like our whole thesis is you bring us a deal, we'll give you 30% carry, which you may, you probably don't get any carry at your existing fund. Yep. And then we won't have any cliff, which most funds give you like a four to seven year cliff which means if the average tenure is only two years or three years, you never see any carry. We get, we get rid of the cliff, you give you access to pull the trigger on a deal yourself, and then we'll write the check on your behalf and syndicate it for the community so that everyone else in the community can now take ownership and build wealth. And, you know, they're taking that on the LP side of things, so they're not just taking the 20%, then they're taking the 80% returns, which is pretty crazy. Especially when you consider that across 900 funds, we get to pick the best deals possible because we're going to hit up the use of the world or the top 20, 30 firms of the world and what their analyst, the principal, or even junior partner seeing they're bringing to us. So it's pretty, it's really cool that you've pointed that out as the first piece because it just reaffirms that data piece. And then on the founder side, like we both quite literally like Clay right now just joined Mike over at Visible VC which he's been crushing it at. And it's, who knows, maybe he'll end up being just as good of an operator as he is as an investor. And then on my side of things, like I'm like at the closing processes or negotiating processes of a few like tier one firm, like Sequoia Index, back startups and stuff like that. And then considering building a company with a serial entrepreneur as well. 
So we're trying to do like the venture ownership thing plus do the investing side of things as much as we can while solving the problems that our community faces. Clay, do you have any thoughts there? Zebo, do you have any questions you want us to answer? And then let's hop into this quick fire round. No, I, I think just hearing what you guys have you know, gone through in the past year in the journey that you are on right now and the decisions you're facing, super inspiring. But earlier today, I was having a conversation with another junior VC, and it's really it's heartwarming to know that we're not the only one thinking about it, and we probably don't talk about it enough because of whatever job title that, that, that we have or what people think we should talk about. But yeah, we all have different desires, I guess. Dude, the, the problem with venture capital is that the AUM is enough to make you rich, but not enough to make a scaled institution. And, and because of it, there's just not enough seats in the demand, the supply demand ratio here relative to what you actually need as a skill set to become a VC. <laughs> it's just like way too much of a gap. So if you're like a private equity person, you end up getting much better economics, even though your life is shitty in some ways. Yeah. Um, but you end up getting better economics, a, a assured path to partnership if you don't fumble the bag. And versus yeah. us, it's like two years, get in, get out. Your founders are all, like, the partners are already probably rich because of the reasons we talked about that are happening in China right now. And like the dynamic of founder perfect fit for getting proprietary access kind of thing. And VCs just don't talk about it because they're just always grateful to have the quote unquote coolest job you can have other than being an entrepreneur or an NBA player or a rapper. So I, I think that over the next three to five years, we'll start to see a change. And we're, yeah. like, we're like personally like involved in trying to shift this. Like we're launching our future GP scout program, which is where we'll give maybe one to five people a quarter their own mini fund where we'll say, hey, here's five to 10 checks for a year to two years. You have full autonomy on it. We'll back that capital. And uh, we have one LP who's into it. Hopefully we can get more LPs who are down. <laughs> but hopefully if you think about it, over a three to five year period, a few of these people might have pretty fire portfolios and be able to escape the trap. And uh, rest of the community may have been able to build some serious wealth through our investments and their carry stakes or through yeah. They can invest in. That's the whole man. We don't want people to keep feeling trapped and just lucky to be in the seat that they're in because they do 90% of the work outside of the capital raising, which is arguably more important, but it is what it is. Yeah. I know we got to jump into quick fire questions, but we're going to skip it if uh, time is an issue because I really want to uh, ask something here. Totally depends on you. Man, this is your episode. Let's, whatever you want it to be is what it's going to be. Cool. Another point of the operator bug and what your, your VCs have been thinking about i think over the past years we the past one year we, we know that a lot more companies are being founded and a lot more capital has, has flowed into those companies a lot more people are getting funded some junior VCs that i've talked to were emerging managers we, we look at it sometimes we see deals that we pass that we feel like the founders might not be as strong as what we want or uh, the product isn't there, the market is not that great. And then you see you know, three months later, they raise a monster round that you just get really confused. I think these kind of dynamics really mess up your mind. Sometimes you're thinking, am I wrong for passing it? Or if I'm right, why is the market behaving like this? And then the bigger question that I have that I constantly ask myself is, why can't I build a better product in that market if, you know, I... I 
have high conviction of the market. And that gets me, gets me anxious. And I want to build, I think operator is a tougher job than investor personally. And that's a concern or constant running thought that I have. And I know other junior VCs that can think about it. It's a truly founder friendly market right now. And it seems like the opportunity is going to be gone. And we know mathematically you want to be on the founder side to really make, you know, the, the, the greatest impact and the, and the greatest return financially even though it's a minor outcome. But yeah, we all can do the math and I believe the math is a matter of- Oh, the math is obviously- The situation that you're in. You have to be, you literally, if you wanna have any type of wealth built, any type of wealth built, you need to one, be a founder and own five to 20 plus percent of a company. Because even if it doesn't exit for big, you make way more money than you would have from your baby amount of carry from your fund. If you just exit at like, a 50 to $100 million valuation, which if you think about it, it's like if you just make it to a series B and you're a VC, so you can determine if a company has any wind under it. You could make 10X what you'd make from your carry in like a four year period, four to seven year period. That's one. And then two, even like a lot of, we we're starting to see a lot of younger VCs just start their funds. They're starting a ton of like five to $25 million funds. Just the economics they make by taking the 20% of their fund, which first and second time funds outperform long-standing firms on average. And 99% of us aren't working at the 1% of the funds that are crushing it. It's yeah. like my, my fund might perform better than my, my, my predecessor firms or my existing firms. And like that being said, the returns I would make off that probably are equal to or considerably greater than what I'd get from my fund. But yeah, you're 100% right on that. The only argument that I might make is if you work for one of the funds that's willing to pay you more than call it 250K a year, and you don't live in San Francisco and New York City where you're getting taxed crazy, plus have really high cost of living, you probably could put your money in crypto and do just, just fine. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but, but no, like I, I just agree with you. I, I agree that you definitely should start your own thing. And uh, I've been thinking about that more and more. And at the bare minimum case, I want to have a portfolio of venture investments and crypto investments and have my own weekend fund through Confluence and go work for a, a company that's funded by the top 20 investors in the country and just ride this overcapitalization wave to an exit. Whether or not it be at like the, a discounted rate in public markets or from an acquirer, I'm still going to see probably better returns across that tranche of assets than I would just hoping that like maybe next year my firm will give me better carry, you know? Like, yeah. And maybe they'll get more than a 2X or 3X return given that like 70 plus percent of funds lose money. Yes. Yeah, I think we're getting real here that, that we're talking about like a lot of the monetary incentives for you know, junior VCs or even the partners. I think they are thinking about it. They're, they're gonna be looking at their PE counterparts or hedge fund counterparts and be like, oh wow, the greatest wealth generation machine is being a founder. And for us looking at, you know, people who are similar age and, and super capable making it and raising a lot of money makes us wonder, hey, are we truly just not that great? So we have to be on the, the, be on the other side or can we do something like equally cool or even better? Um, I, I say go to the other side. Like yeah. for me personally, it's like I'm, I've been doing consulting stuff from like 500 startups to being a professor at HBCU VC. And now I just signed like a really dope deal with a multi-billion dollar family office. So like cash wise, I'm making as much, if not 
more, at least for now, than I would have been at my last firm. Then, like, the amount of carry that I'm getting off of, we just, we've done now, like, I believe four deals, four or five deals. And like the amount of carry I get from those and maybe two more would have equated to what, and it's been like three months. The amount of carry I get from those, maybe two more on top of that would be equivalent to what I would have got in my current, in my old firm. And then if I go join a startup, because I'm doing these things as, as consulting things, right? So they're not taking up all of my time. Then I still get access to an opportunity to maybe get some one, like a half a point to two or three points of a company. And if I co-found it, like, 20% or 30% assuming I would want to build with someone more experienced than me that would take more of the company and then we get diluted, right? Like in most scenarios, you're better off. You just have to have confidence and you got to create infrastructure for you to be able to still do investments on the side, which SPVs and AngelList and all these kind of things make it incredibly uh, accessible nowadays. There's just no reason not to. I totally agree. That's why we started this studio line of business. We're going to do both. We're young. I think we have more than 24 hours a day, just given how much multitasking we do. So let's see it. I think that we'll bear the fruits of our risk taking or seemingly risky moves. I don't know how risky it is. One, one last point to that is just a lot of people go off and do their own things. And because they went off and did their own things, even if they failed, like they're better positioned to be a principal or a junior partner at a lot of these firms that would have slow rolled them to becoming a VP or principal or senior associate even after like three years of going out on their own. So I don't know if, if anyone's on the fence, as long as they aren't at a top, call it 50 firm or like in an amazing seat, I would argue that you should just take the leap. And in two years, like if you have to go take another like associate role or something like that as a downgrade, just try it. That is an advice that I can get on board with and I'm uh, running right now. So. Yeah, exactly. Man. Clay, dude, we haven't heard your voice. It's possible that Clay is like eating like a uh, huge grilled octopus and steak somewhere in Florida on a beach. Uh, <laughs> like, bro, speak to us, man. We miss you. <laughs> yeah, I wish. But no, I've just had some background noise. So I've, I've tried to mute myself the whole time. I know I have to jump in two minutes here. It's so, like we could just axe this last part and just close out on what we just talked about if that works for you. Yo, how about this, Zebo? Can you ask Clay a question and then we close it out on that? Okay, cool. Uh, my question would be, uh, let's rapid fly. I'm gonna do five of these, you guys send over. Okay, in the last year, what is a new belief behavior habit that has that you have tried but realize is actually not great for your life? Ooh. Flip the question back on you, bro. Yeah, it's tough. I don't know. Not having a lease has been pretty liberating and just living in different spots for a few months at a time. I mean, I've really done that since August and have loved it. That's why I've stayed in Florida. And we've actually heard that answer from a couple other people. I've just been nomadic. Like, I think I'm going to continue to be nomadic for a while. So I'd say that. That's not something that I would have considered beforehand, but in the past, year it's been awesome cool yeah totally agree yeah uh, i think all the founder houses are super interesting i couldn't imagine buying a lease at this point i think the next time i get a long-term thing it'll be a mortgage on a pro like an investment property 
Yeah. I think I'm the same way. Right. I got to hop to another call right now. Zebo, this is great. We're going to clean it up and we're going to shoot it over to you so you just have a chance to listen to it before we send anything out. And then, yeah, we'll ping you whenever we do that. Feel free to take as much time as you want, just listening through it and giving us the okay. But then any help that you could do, just shooting out to people on your network once it's live would be much appreciated. For sure. Thank you. Thank you guys for having us. A lot of fun. I'm glad that we got to talk about a lot of the economic drivers for people in the industry. Yeah, it's sensitive. So, yeah. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Like, just the, the topics are just so relevant and just comfortable to dive into. So, thank you, brother. Um, Thank you. You guys are doing some cool stuff. Huge thanks again to Zebo for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Zebo, we've linked his social profiles below in the description. And if you're within Confluence, you can find his contact info in our directory. next steps if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member if you have any feedback for us please feel free to reach out directly either to tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at hope to hear from you all soon